Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire, fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Yes, we're back. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. This time, after our previous podcast, Mega Astronaut Fest two big interviews. We'll be looking ahead to the first rocket launches from the UK with the deputy head of the UK Space Agency. And as promised last time, we'll be chatting to Apollo legend Poppy Northcutt about her career and the vital work she did to help get astronauts home from the moon. Now, back in the 1950s, Britain's aircraft industry led the world. It looked like we'd soon be ready to launch into space. It's Farnborough again, Britain's aerospace industry on view to the world. The Great Exhibition Hall draws vast crowds. Black Knight has had 17 successful launchings. It is a ballistics research vehicle powered by the Gamma motor. It will be developed as a three-stage rocket to launch satellites in different orbits. I like the way they said launchings. That was quite interesting. I like the music. I I just noticed that. That that music sounds like it's a sort of Hollywood romantic film, doesn't it? There's plenty more of that. We'll have to dig it out for the next (laughs) podcast. Well, in 1971, the UK's Black Arrow rocket successfully blasted off from Woomera in Australia, carrying the Prospero satellite. But by then, Britain's launcher programme had already been cancelled, making the UK the only country to have developed a satellite launch capability and then abandoned it. Well, now, 51 years later, the UK is back in the launch business. In the coming months, Virgin Orbit, which uses a converted 747, will launch from Newquay in Cornwall. And next year, the first rocket launches are scheduled from Scotland with launchers developed in the UK. Well, it's a significant moment for the UK in space and something that, as a UK-based space podcast, will be following with interest over the coming months. I really just can't quite believe this is actually happening. It's taken a while. It has taken a while. I can't believe we're actually talking about this. Now, I've been chatting to the deputy head of the UK Space Agency, Ian Annett, who oversees the UK's launch programme. His background is in the Royal Navy, and in his spare time, he's an aerobatic pilot. So before we got on to launches, funding, and whether the UK will fund another astronaut... I asked him about his hobby. Yeah, well, you've always got to have something slightly interesting on your obituary at the end of the day, haven't you, as well? But for me, it's about the challenge. 
And also aviation and aerospace is something that I've always had a, an interest in from a very, very young age. And for whatever reason, I couldn't be a, a military pilot. And um, I became an engineer as well, which I, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now without my background. But I'd always hankered after saying, actually, I, I, I quite like the idea of flying. So I learned to fly, and then I kind of naturally transitioned into aerobatics. And, and the thing I love about it is that I can't think about work, can't think about anything else, because if you don't, you get it wrong. So, so it gives me a, a, a complete mental and physical distraction from what I'm doing, which actually is very good for me from a work perspective. And it's great fun. It really is. I, I, I love it. I'm not particularly good at it, but you know, I'm always seeking to, to improve. And it's about as close, I think, as I'll get to space. So you've got that in common almost with astronauts, that just the thrill. That the, it must be the, is it, it's the acceleration, is it? The, that in the moment idea. No, I, th- I think it's a mixture of everything. One of which is about the, the, the challenge. Can I do this? There is a bit about the thrill when you get it right. There's probably a bit about the dopamines that when you get it right as well, that you think, oh, I've, I've cracked that one. And uh, it's kind of very grounding as well because you're always learning. And that's one of the mantras that I say to people here. There's, there's never a day goes by in the agency that I don't learn something. The slightly depressing thing that, I, that, that is is that every day I do learn something. It's often from people who are younger than me now these days as well. OK, so let's talk about launching from the UK. Launch UK. Now, we've been making this podcast 11 years. And when we started, it was the first UK space conference it would have been crazy to have talked about launching from the UK, launching actual rockets from the UK yeah. 11 years ago. I mean, there is no way, there might have been some people mentioning it, but there's no way that would have been a serious proposition. Now, it's, it's not just being talked about, it's actually going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it is. Uh, I would remember, of course, that the UK has a strong heritage in, in launch, right back to the Black Arrow days as, um, as well. So, and whilst we kind of gave that up in 1971 for you know, a whole host of reasons, I think that, that that heritage has always existed in the background. So I'm not surprised that we're there, particularly with the technical skills and heritage that we've got around the rest of the space market. Uh, the one, one of the key things for us, I think, that's driven it is kind of the, the, the market for space. You know, we've seen over the last 50 years an immense shift from government-backed programmes towards commercially backed programs and you know that's never more obvious than in the small satellite market there were something like 1700 satellites launched last year and 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 most of those were into low earth orbit and and the majority of them for commercial reasons as well so there's the market there is there the uk market there because there are plenty of satellite producers in the uk Mm. it's that question why launch from the uk because they're two separate things aren't they yeah of course of of course and uh, the launch market is a global one so we're not just looking at you know uk providers or european providers as well it's definitely a global market if if you look at the total value of of um of the space market it's around about 360 or 400 billion dollars whilst launch doesn't take up a, a a big chunk of that i think it's around about 15 to 20 billion of dollars worth, then there is definitely an addressable market for the UK. If you take those that are vertically integrated or they're government launched from the US or other countries, you kind of take all of those away. There's, there's still a significant proportion that's out there to compete for. And when you look at the kind of orbits that people are demanding now, sun synchronous orbits, so that kind of drives you towards polar orbits, and we're geographically well placed for that because. If you want to launch north, you need to have the space to launch north. You need to have the ocean, the seas, um, and the kind of the safety range to do that. 
So when you look at the the sites that are currently planning to launch from the UK, um, Shetland and Sutherland in Scotland, then they have that advantage that they can access uh, polar orbits, sun-synchronous orbits, and actually they've got that kind of downrange clearance beyond them. Of course, when we look at things like Cornwall with a horizontal perspective, that's that's kind of so a horizontal launch, of course, taking off with, uh, in this case, a 747 with um, with a rocket under its wing. It can then fly out to, to clear range space, and actually it's also got an advantage that it can put it into, insert, insert your um, satellites into, into the specific orbits that you want as well. So if we're so well-positioned geographically, we've got the market there, as you say, the, the potential global market, why hasn't anyone else done it? I mean, is, is it hard? Yeah, I mean, hey, that's another one of my mantras. Space is hard, you know, and it's 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 kind of not on a linear line on a graph. It's definitely exponential. You want to sh- you want to go up that graph a little bit more. You have to try kind of three or four times as hard. So yeah, getting the technology right, getting the skills right, getting the industrial capacity uh, right is 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 kind of hard work. But we've have you know we've got some fantastic capabilities in the UK. You know, the, the likes of Orbex based in Scotland, the likes of Skyrora based in. In Edinburgh, and um, uh, and you know there are others as well, but they're the kind of two that I would cite. And what they're doing from a technological perspective, whether it be really novel propulsion uh, that they're using, you know, Orbex is using uh, methane, and Skyrora planning on using something called Ecosine, which is you know using recycled plastic. These are really kind of novel concepts. When you look at how you create the pressure vessels, they're using novel concepts for those as well, in order to make them lighter. I mean, we all know. Well, if you look at the rocket equation, of course, it's all about the um, the weight of the the full vehicle and the empty vehicle. So the lighter you can make it, the better you get that advantage. And so there's some really good work on making sure that we can make those vehicles as light as possible. That's kind of UK technology, and in many respects we are leading, certainly in in Europe and certainly on some aspects globally. The opportunity to 3D print engines. I know that that's a global capability as well, but that's kind of opened up a lot of the access to it and some of the skills that we've got within that area are absolutely world leading. So you bring all of that together, you bring the skills, you 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 know, you, you, you look at the aspiration that people have got, you look at the market that's there, and you look at making sure that you put the right regulatory environment in place, which is in part where the government comes to. We've got a very good legal framework within which to operate as well. And also when you look at things like insurance markets, um, then you find that most of the satellites that are actually launched into space globally have a, a routine insurance in um, in London as well. So there's a great environment within the UK for actually getting after launch as well. Just coming back to the launches, that's what's interesting about this. I mean, put Virgin Orbit aside because they're manufactured in in California. But actually to have rocket manufacturers in the UK is another, you know, just unimaginable five, ten years ago. In fact, just thinking back to that first space conference, there was a whole session on Prospero, the the British satellite launched in... Uh, and then the Britain abandoned the the launcher program. So it, it's just incredible that we're not just making the satellites, but developing the launchers to launch the satellites. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's a really, really important point. It, it also gives you an element from a national perspective uh, to have that kind of assured access. As as uh, you know, as you pointed out, Britain's very good at satellite design and manufacture. Uh, we're kind of also really good at operations. You find that there's a number of companies, you know, that have large operation centres for global constellations. So the likes of Inmarsat, of course, in the UK, and we're also really good at exploiting that data using the applications for it as well. The kind of the whole was that launch piece, and if you can fill that launch, and at the moment, you know, for, for kind of small sats, then 
it provides you with that full, what I call a full spectrum capability. That's kind of a bit of a military phrase, but you know, it gives you everything from design all the way through to exploitation of data, and uh, you can you know launch fills that that hole that we've had until recently as well. So that, from a national perspective, is also I think a really important point to recognise. I did wonder about that, that that sort of idea of a strategic capability to do this. It's something that the European Space Agency has talked about with having Kuro, the European spaceport, of just being able to have that European capability. And I suppose now with the fact we you can't launch from Russia for obvious reasons, these sorts of things are becoming more and more important. Oh, I, th- I mean, I, I think the um, the sad events uh, in Ukraine and the way that that shaped our relationship with uh, Russia, particularly from a space perspective, is uh, is you know it's 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 quite important, and it's one we've got to think very long and and hard about. I've always said that science and the arts are the, are the two areas that you keep links with countries, even even in the most difficult times. And whether you look at the International Space Station through um, through the Cold War, or you know, or other examples, we've always kept those links. Yeah, very, very important. I find it. I think it's really difficult to understand how we can do that in the current circumstances with Russia. And you know, we're already seeing, of course, with um, us quite rightly saying that you know, for the foreseeable future, we're not going to use um, Soyuz as a launch capability. Uh, that will have a, a displacement activity in the market, and and you know, not just with Soyuz. When you look at some of the U.S. Uh, launch vehicles Atlas V relies on RD-180 engines that are built in Russia as does Antares as well and uh, you know to an extent Vega as well they've got a, a Russian derived engine engine in there so so understanding the impact that that will have in the medium to longer term we, we, we kind of still need to work through many of those ones I kind of talk about particularly with the Soyuz are heavy lift vehicles but many of course small satellites go up as ride shares on these larger vehicles so the impact that, that the loss of that I've got no empirical empirical data to support it, but you know, some would say that there's going to be a kind of a you know it's a thirty percent loss of capacity globally. That'll have an impact on the on the small sat market, and we'll see it displaced, and people will still want ride shares. And so we need to think about whether that will uh, shape the market in the future, and whether that means that we'll see some of that market come to UK providers or not. It's a little bit too early to tell at the moment, but but I could certainly see it changing as a result. And now, if all this pans out, you could potentially, and I mean, not just potentially, it's likely that there will be three launch sites, operational launch sites in the UK. So the the very tip of, of Scotland, Shetland and Cornwall for Virgin Orbit launching from a, a 747. Uh, yeah, yes, well, more than three, of course. There's um, there's seven across the UK. The sites that 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 have identified themselves as saying that we could be sport, uh, we could be spaceports, but the ones that will actually likely to happen in the, the immediate term, yes. those three. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, again, you've got to look at how much the market will sustain as well. But that would be really exciting um, over the next twelve months or so that we see three spaceports operating together, complementary to each other as well because I think that they do you know, discreetly different things. Um, yeah, that will be a, a kind of really exciting opportunity, not, not only from catalyzing investment in the UK, but also you know, one of our other roles within the agency is to champion space and, and say, hey, look, you know, this is kind of really, really important for a whole host of reasons. Economically, yes. Building skills, yes. The exploration that can kind of come from that as well, the technology that comes from doing all of that work as well. Uh, that's a really, really important part. And also getting you know, youngsters engaged with this, being inspirational 
this is kind of a, a national pride thing for us as well. Yeah, if we, if we can do this, it's absolutely fantastic. And then we can inspire the next generation of space engineers, of space scientists, of space lawyers, of space philosophers who have to think about things like mining on the moon and whether it's the right thing to do. We need to encourage all of those. And I think that the launch program with, that we've got at the moment is, is really a good foundation for all of those uh, parts that champion space. I think that also speaks to how far, again, the space agency has come. I used to edit a magazine called Space UK for British National Space Centre, then the UK Space Agency. When we started out, this is before the UK Space Agency was established, we weren't allowed to print in it any pictures of astronauts or of rockets because Britain didn't do astronauts and it didn't do rockets and how much that has changed but also that links to the aspiration doesn't it that you you need some of this i mean it's got to make economic sense but you need some of this to inspire yeah i, mean, I always say to the teams in the agency you know the start point is not to be constrained by resource you know uh, only be constrained by your imagination so you know what do we really want to do what can we do how does it help and then of course you then have to look and say okay how does it fit strategically how does it support the economy? How does it support science? And how does it support championing space and getting people interested in it as well? You know, the science bit is, is kind of really, I mean, it's a really important part of it. And whether that's actually data analysis of all of the information that comes from space, whether it's actually looking at the Earth or whether it's looking outside of the Earth, all of those things, I mean, you know, that's the human endeavour, isn't it, to explore. And uh, that's a really important part about what we what we do as well, both to help us with climate change and understanding um, that climate change from the climate variables that we look at, uh, uh, more than half of which, by the way, you can only see from space, or whether it's those missions that are looking, as I say, upwards and outwards, solar orbiter being one, you know, it's just had its closest approach to the, um, the sun, or, you know, being able to go out to a Lagrange point and sneak round the corner and see whether there's any, um, uh, any sunspots emerging to give you advance warning, of course, of anything that might have an impact on Earth. So, uh, or anything beyond that, looking beyond our solar system, going right back to Voyager 1 and 2 that are kind of still transiting out through the galaxy. So, so science is also an important part of what we do, not, not just launch from here as well. And do you think, I mean, you know, there are arguments that I would agree with. Uh, do you think that those arguments have been won now in terms of the argument with government, in terms of funding, uh, the argument, uh, well, essentially with the taxpayer, really, who ultimately pay the bill for all this that this is all worth doing so, so i mean i i think that that that's a, we have to constantly explain why this is not only good for the country the economy but also actually society at large everything that people do touches on space at the moment whether it's looking at your you know your gps watch whether it's in your car whether it's getting your food deliveries whether it's drawing money from a an atm in uh, in the wall and financial transactions all of it depends on space for timing, for observation or otherwise, you know, crop analysis through agri. And also we've seen from a security perspective how that can kind of help out as well. So, so space is, is embedded in everything that we do in, in, um, in society. But when you look at whether it's supporting things like the International Space Station that we do through ESA, or indeed whether you look at those exploratory missions that either look back at Earth or beyond it, all of them have huge technological spin-offs as well whether it's you know, manufacturing in space as well, because you know, if you look at the way that crystals grow in zero gravity, it's completely different and you can get much better efficiency out of it. Or indeed, as I say, understanding the universe, which is a human endeavour to explore and understand where we came from. I think all of those are 
really, really important to us. And, and I think that's reflected again when you look at from a research perspective, of course, the government's targets to reach 2.4% for R&D as well. And Bayes, our parent department, of course, are given £20 billion in the settlement in order to um, and to get after that R&D, in order so we can actually make those societal improvements that help everybody in living their lives in a more comfortable, uh, more healthy and more sustainable fashion. Now, I, I can't not talk about astronauts, because we've talked about rockets. You've got the ministerial coming up later this year. Uh, we actually talked to Tim Peake a few days ago. He's very keen to go back into space. Uh, you know, the way it works, you don't buy a seat for Tim Peake. But is the, the momentum to, to maintain funding for, for astronauts, whether that's Tim Peake or future astronauts in the UK? Yeah, I mean, again, that's a kind of really interesting question. The, it's kind of, we don't approach this from the basis of actually funding astronauts. What we do is actually we, we fund good missions within ESA, um, and, and whether they're Earth observation missions or whether they're science missions. You know, the, the, the recognition of how much you support, we're the, biggest, the fourth biggest uh, funder in, in, in ESA, uh, how you support that. That means that ESA will then offer you the opportunity to um, a space for the astronaut program as well. So our, our focus really is on the science in space, and by investing that much at the Council for Ministers that have come up, then, you know, you, you like to think, well, actually, maybe there is an opportunity for an, for an astronaut. It's, I mean, it's again, it's a great debate, isn't it? What's the best way to explore? Is it actually through having human interaction up there? Or is it through, using, with the advancement of technology, using robotics and using artificial intelligence? Personally, I don't think it's a binary answer. I, th- I think that there's a spectrum on there. There are some really good things that we can do with robotics. If you're looking at deep, deep space exploration... You know, the weakest link in all of that is the human that you put inside it because we're not kind of designed for outer space. But, you know, when you look at things closer to home in the International Space Station and actually lunar exploration and challenging the human form to go beyond its own home, I think there's kind of room for that as well. And it's going to be really exciting, isn't it? I, I'd say to people that this decade is probably the most important decade in space since the 1960s and 70s when we had people on the moon you know they look at the focus of it the Artemis program getting humans back onto the moon and that acting as a stepping stone to you know prizes beyond that Mars in the future I mean it's a really really exciting decade to be involved in space but in terms of human space flight there is a program of course for for um, for Artemis for the moon Uh, ESA has part of that as well it will remain to be seen um, who contributes towards actually that kind of who's going to step on the lunar surface from Europe and then you know who knows beyond that and onto uh, onto Mars and uh, the rate at which we're seeing change in this whole area I wouldn't be surprised in my lifetime that we see somebody stepping onto onto Mars as well which would be really really exciting I, th- I think the highest I'll get is kind of a couple of thousand feet in my aircraft though. Ian Annett, Deputy CEO for Programme Delivery at the UK Space Agency and part-time aerobatic pilot. And I think you noticed at the end there, he didn't really answer the question. <laughs> Although, I have to be fair, I didn't expect him to. He said it was a, it was an interesting question. Well, it was an interesting question. Yeah, but no one will answer that. But no. also, let's face it, if Liechtenstein suddenly put €2 billion Euros into... ESA, there would be an astronaut from Liechtenstein. I I would put money on that. Not €2 billion, but, you know, quite a lot of money. I I think in the past, shall we say, there is a correlation between how much individual countries have put in and 
the number of astronauts that represent those countries. So, and obviously yeah. at the moment there's the that's understandable. There's the the new uh, intake of astronauts going through the selection process. It will be very interesting to see how many yes. of those are Brits, because I think Brit Britain was like the second or third highest number of applicants. There are going to be a lot of potential astronauts who will be seeking funding from the UK government. So a lot of this will play out at the end of the year. So it's the ESA, mm. what they call the ESA ministerial meeting, when the ministers from the member states all get together and decide the, the future funding of uh, the space agency. It'd be interesting to see how things pan out and how the UK decides to put and where the UK decides to put it, put its money. I, I, I mean, one thing we do know is whoever makes that final ESA astronaut selection, they're all going to be amazing, aren't they? They're, I mean, oh, it's a bit like the Artemis they're crew. They're just the best people. The Artemis crew are unbelievable. Yeah, they are the best people. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, you, you can't, can't quite no, wish we around, no. but, oh. uh, the other thing I was just going to mention was uh, we talked about Virgin Orbit uh, and our podcast where we actually go inside the Virgin Orbit oh, factory. that's when we were in, yeah, um, in California. in California. Yeah. That's in our October 2019 podcast. Oh, when we could travel without When we could leave masks. the studio, where we could actually <laughs> leave the studio where we last uh, went to America. That was great um, fun. We had a very was. good time there. And also we've got a podcast as well where I was in Cornwall, um, looking at their plans then for for Virgin Orbit. To, oh, yes. To go. So yeah. we've, we've got, I can't quite remember when that, what year that well, we've was. We've got 11, worth, 11 was, years. We've got yeah, 11 just, years. Just listen worth to 11 years yeah. worth of podcasts. That will be on there too. We should work out how long that would take to listen to 11 years worth of podcasts. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can reach us via social media and email podcast at spaceboffins.com. And uh, there's some great pictures uh, that Sue's put on the Facebook. Oh, well, you put it oh, on I'll, Twitter. I put it on Twitter. I'll pop, pop them on uh, Facebook, Facebook as, well. as well. From the Zagreb Science Museum, and there's some rather lovely retro space hardware, including uh, and some a, stuff that looks like it's space hardware, but actually isn't. Actually, isn't. No, uh, it was cool. an extraordinary museum. Actually, if you're ever in Zagreb, yeah, really it's actually called museum. the Technology Museum. Oh, okay. It's the Tesla Technology Museum, actually. Tesla isn't Technology it? Museum. It's mm. full title. Okay. Thank um, you very much. Oh, we we must talk about Tesla at some stage in the future, or get somebody on with some connection there, because we also went to Tesla's home as well, didn't we, in Croatia? And oh, I mean, he's in what a guy. I'm sure most people listening know what an amazing guy he was, but it's still brought it home of like, wow, what a futurist. Anyway, if you heard last month's podcast, apart from a rather fabulous interview with the artist and former shuttle astronaut Nicole Stott, we featured some Vox Pops uh, from the Aim Higher Gallery at London Science Museum, which uh, had said a gala. Uh, you said gallery. Oh, did I say yeah. gallery? Oh, yeah. well, it, the people know what I mean. It's gala gallery. <laughs> anyway, there were a number of interesting people there, including Poppy Northcutt. She was 25 when that now famous black and white photo appeared of a lone woman in the Apollo mission control room. And she was actually the first woman to work at that control room. And that was just a taste, really, because we were hoping for a more in-depth interview with Poppy to discuss her career. And I'm delighted to say we've got one. 
In the late 60s and early 70s, Poppy worked for a NASA aerospace contractor called TRW as something called a computress. A computer. That's and a extra- com- I, I, it's extraordinary. When, when you showed me this, first of all, I was just the computress. I know. Well, I horrible, thought computer. Horrible, I've heard yes. the word computer, you know, with human beings doing the calculator, but computress I want to do it like the IT crowd computress but I think it's computress I think or computress we'll hear her pronounce it in a moment anyway but she also worked as an engineer there which is you know a lot easier for me to uh, pronounce although she's a mathematician you know by by, by background and uh, she worked there throughout the Apollo missions before eventually retraining studying law and becoming an attorney which she continues to do now uh, in her late 70s Poppy, anyway, during that Apollo period of her life, calculated return to Earth trajectories for Apollo 8. And without her contributions and simulations, the Apollo astronauts might not have been able to get home. So her work was essential to the success of the missions. But before we get into that, I did start by asking her to explain her job as a computress. Women were hired with that job title as kind of tech aides to graph up stuff and, you know, do some computations on the fly. Because to use the computer, you had to input stuff on cards. It had to go through batch processing and so forth. Using computers just was not at all like it is today. The computer says we had large calculators on our desk, and I do mean large. (laughs) Okay. How big? When I first started, it was about mm, 20, 24 inches square, and then maybe 12 inches tall, and it was very heavy, and it was mechanical. Actually, it was a very advanced calculator for the times because it would do a square root which most calculators would not do it's just that it was mechanical and it would make endless noise and take forever but it was quite advanced for its time and what sort of things did you work on at that time when you joined TRW I was always working on a contract with NASA you know I was working with a team of engineers developing the return to earth program and I just found the problem really interesting. And I was there for, you know, I was probably there a couple of months before it occurred to me that I actually was as smart as these guys I was working with, but they were earning a lot more money. (laughs) And uh, I thought, you know, I think I would rather be a member of the technical staff than be a computerist. And was that an easy transfer to me? Yes and no. By the time I was actually promoted, I mean, I was basically doing the work anyway. The difficulty was in getting the promotion to go through, the company was basically a more progressive probably for the time than most people, most were. And the guy that was the head of Houston operations, I mean, he was very supportive. He had told me after I'd been there six months that he wanted to promote me to be a member of the technical staff. I mean, they were very pleased. You know, I was working really beyond what computers did. But when a year came by, I still hadn't been technically promoted. It was two or three, I think it was about three months later when he called me in and he said that he was apologizing for how long it had taken to get the promotion through. And the problem was that the pay difference was so great that he had to go through 
a lot of layers above him in order to get it approved. So what year did you begin conducting trajectory analysis for the Apollo missions? From the time I started working for them, which was in 65, I think is when I started. I was always on that project. I just changed my job title and got a larger paycheck. And how did you find the work? Did you obviously enjoy it, I'm assuming? The whole notion of the problem to me was interesting. I mean, you know, how, how do you optimize this? This It's a three-body problem when you're coming back to the Earth from the moon in particular. It, it's much harder than coming back from Earth orbit. There's no closed, what's called a closed form solution, which means that you have to iterate. You have to sort of make a guess and keep making better and better guesses about how to do this and then eventually home in on a, on a solution. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to optimize it. It's not just that you're trying to find a trajectory that will bring you home. You're trying to find one that will minimize fuel and or minimize the trip time while still satisfying the requirements about, you know, you have to come in at certain reentry angles and you'd like to land in the water, not on the land and things like that. It was just a, a, a very interesting problem. On trajectory, how big a mistake or margin for error did there need to be for something like an Apollo craft to land, you know, on land, which could be fatal for the astronauts concerned, as opposed to landing in the ocean? By the time we were flying, I mean, we were, we were actually pretty much landing almost on the recovery ships. And that was part of it was everything was improving over time and improving tremendously in terms of accuracy. But that must have made you feel great then to know that what you were doing and that mathematics, you know, it all works. And we take it for granted now because there are so many spacecraft. But when you're doing something right at the beginning of the technology, it's it's sort of immense validation. It was immense validation. You know, one of the questions I sometimes I've seen people ask sometimes is, well, why were we always landing over in the Pacific Ocean, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? Well, the answer to that is when they very, 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 very first started, there was a concern about the era being bigger than the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) So that just shows the difference of how far it moved over that time period. And even then, I mean, they were landing, they were coming in within a mile of the recovery ships. Did you do simulations as well where you had to think, okay, what would happen if there wasn't enough fuel or something like that? In terms of if there wasn't enough fuel, well, there's not enough fuel, okay? I mean, that's that's sort of a rest in peace problem. You know, there's some absolute limits. The main kind of simulations that we would do over in the control center once we were approaching actually flying the mission was uh, using, for example, the descent propulsion system or the ascent propulsion system off the uh, lunar landing module to to be able to get more fuel in case there was a problem in terms of the amount of fuel or in terms of using the main spacecraft engine. And that was exactly what happened with Apollo 13 is the main spacecraft engine was uh, not available, okay? And uh, we had to come back using the descent propulsion system from the lunar module. Before we get into Apollo um, 13, what was the atmosphere like when you had the first 
Apollo 8 mission that obviously you've been working on that injection phase of, of Apollo 8? To me, that was really the most exciting mission, partly because it was the first time to go to the moon, even though they didn't land, but it was the first time to really leave the Earth and go into the gravitational pull of another another body. And it was the first time that our software was used in flight for the return to Earth. So it was accelerated, the schedule, and it was accelerated. It was very tense. There were many, many systems that really had not previously been tested in flight. I think, I mean, some people have called it the most daring mission, and I think it really was the most daring of the Apollo missions because there was so much that had not been previously tested. The scariest moment, I think, was when they went behind the moon that first time and they did the maneuver to go into a lunar orbit. Because when they're behind the moon, you don't have any communication with the spacecraft. And they do this maneuver. You don't know whether it went well or did not until they come around to the front face of the moon. So that was very nerve-wracking, waiting to see, waiting to get the tracking data, waiting to hear from them. And they were actually a few seconds late coming out, according to the models that we had. And that could have been, I mean, everything that goes through your mind at that point is, my goodness, did they, did they overburn? Is that what the problem is? Are we on a collision course with the moon? Are we going to have enough time to be able to get a new trajectory up to them in case they have to abort? Fortunately, it was not a problem. The reason that they seemed to be late coming out was because there are mass concentrations on the moon that had not previously been modeled. So the tracking model that we had was a little off because it wasn't taking those into account. How did your colleagues at the time treat you? Because obviously there are very few women working the same sort of job that you, you were doing. You know, I tell people when they ask about that, you know, it was, you know, you you go into a situation like that, you're the only person that's, you know, you're the only woman in the room or or you're the only minority person in the room or whatever. I mean, you know, you're you're sort of the purple cow and everybody's going to look at you just because you look different. So, you know, I think the sort of most off-putting thing that happened was that I could hear sometimes over the headset, I could hear people talking about some channel that they were looking at. The way it worked over there is, you know, we had a whole array of channels that we could tune into and see the video and see the audio on. And uh, they would talk about channel, whatever it was, I don't remember, 53 or whatever. And I kept hearing that mentioned, oh, you won't believe what you'll see on channel whatever. I finally turned it on, and it was me. Uh, they had a video camera that was just pointed at me. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, you, you choose how you react to things, Sue. I mean, you know. How did you react? Well, you know, I thought, okay, I'm, you know, they'll get bored with this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And they did, you know. Yeah. I, you know, you just, you know, you can be really upset by things or you can just go on. And I just went on. I thought, okay, well, you know, this is weird and it feels a little uncomfortable. 
you know, and you're sitting there second guessing, have I been scratching? I mean, what have I been doing, you know, on camera all this time? But I, I, I was aware that I was the only woman in the room. So, of course, I mean, I'm an oddity. Mm. So, you know, you just wait for them to get over it. Best way to react. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not let it freak you out. I mean, you know, otherwise they're controlling your actions. So, you know, I just went, okay, they'll get over it. And did they stop looking at you on the channels, you know, as the missions went on that you were working at, you know, by the time you got to Apollo 17, they weren't bothered anymore? uh, By the time we were flying Apollo 8, I mean, those were in the early simulations. We simulated for several months, okay? After a while, they got bored with that. (laughs) And by the time then you got to Apollo 13 when did you you personally first become aware that something had gone wrong actually I was at home when I became aware of it I had flown down to the Cape and actually watched the launch because I didn't have to be in the control center until the spacecraft was fairly close to the moon had entered the moon sphere of influence is what it was called that was under the effect of the moon's gravity more than it was the earth's gravity So that gave me time to go watch the launch and then, you know, I could come back and I had gotten home and uh, I wasn't watching TV or anything. At the time, I got a call from a journalist and uh, he had interviewed me for some other kind of thing. So he had my number, which was unlisted and uh, told me what had happened. I was not aware of what had happened. So Uh, did you go into the uh, mission control? I did. And I was a little surprised that they hadn't called me. And as it turned out, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't know what my number was, okay, because I had an unlisted number. And I, that was really pretty funny because we had these glass tops over our, over our counters, you know, the console. And in between the glass and the metal, I mean, there was a card in there that had my name and my phone number in case they needed to reach me. But I guess they were a little nervous and not paying attention. So what did you get to work on uh, as part of this dramatic tale of ingenuity? We had simulated how to handle these things. So really the challenge was not so much on us as it was on the environmental people. They had those problems with the heating and the air oxygen supply. Uh, that were really more troublesome than the trajectory stuff because our program was designed to do what needed to be done. I mean, the first thing that was making the decision, do we do we get onto a free return? Because that particular mission was the first mission that was being flown that was not on what's called a free return trajectory. And what a free return trajectory is, it's you're, you're on your pathway to the moon, but if you don't go into orbit around the moon your path will bring you back to the earth okay without doing another maneuver that particular mission was a non-free return mission the first one so if they hadn't done a maneuver it would not have come back to the earth it would have gone out somewhere into space so the the first decision was do we just wait until the optimal time to do the maneuver, which is behind the moon, or do we put the spacecraft onto a free return trajectory with a smaller burn, okay, but still something that will bring the spacecraft back to the Earth? 
So that was the first thing that was done was to put the spacecraft onto a free return trajectory. You don't want to do your major maneuver at that point because the geometry is just not right. And to, to try to make a maneuver other than when you're behind the moon, you're going to have to use a lot of fuel to make a big change in that trajectory. So a small change was made to put it on a free return. And then a major maneuver was done when they were behind the moon to speed it up and bring them home like a day early. And did you sort of stay there for long periods or did you work on the mathematical solutions, go home and then come back in? We uh, had shifts, okay, but our shifts were long. The usual flight teams had three to four different teams that would work like eight, nine-hour shifts. We didn't have enough people on the return to Earth to be able to do that. We basically had two shifts, and we would overlap during critical phases of the, you know, the flight. So we would both be there during the maneuvers. That must have been pretty exhausting then. Well, it was exhausting. Um, actually, probably the most exhausting mission was eight rather than 13. Oh. Uh, 13 was just stressful. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was very stressful because of all the uncertainties. You know, our program, our computer program did just exactly what it was supposed to do. It was built to handle that kind of situation. So it's not like we're sitting there with pieces of paper and pens actually calculating. You have faith in the work you've already done. Exactly. And you're looking at what's coming out of the computer and and, uh, does it look like it's optimized the way you need, you know, will it serve a purpose and so forth. It's not like you're sitting there with a slide rule or with pencil and paper or whatever. Did the Apollo 13 film, which I've assumed you've seen, did that accurately reflect from your memory what what, what it was like at that time? Actually, I have not seen the Apollo 13. Really? Movie. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and the, the, the reason I have not seen it is I have tried to watch it, but I only get about 10 minutes into it and I start feeling really anxious which is odd because while the flight was going on, I didn't feel that anxiety. But I suppose you compartmentalize all of that while you're working on it, the stress and so forth and so on. I only feel that stress now. I didn't feel it at the time. <laughs> that's, that's really in- interesting. Well, it was lovely the way that the um, both your, you know yourself and the mission operations team received the presidential medal of freedom for your work in that rescue operation you've been working now for decades as a, as an attorney and specializing in civil rights and and women's rights and the, the sort of hints of that future career were there when i read that you'd taken a day off work in 1970 to attend the um, women's strike for um, equality march and you've had if anything an even more successful career within the law and um, when we met a few weeks ago in London at the Science Museum I'd asked you what did you consider your most important work and you without hesitation you said you know the, the women's rights and the work that you're 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 doing now for women who are working in the space industry you know the assumption would be of course that you know over 50 years down the line that that it's so much better for for women today are there any situations where you think 
things could be improved? I certainly think they can be improved. I mean, we still need more women in the tech area. One of the things that's been sort of disappointing is that back in the 60s, 70s, about uh, 38% of the computer programmers were women. And that number has really declined, and it's more like 18% now. Wow. So that's gone on the decline rather than gone on the increase. And I'm really disappointed in that. On the other hand, I mean, we have increases that have happened in uh, other areas of science and technology. And if you look at the control center these days, you'll see a lot of women in the control center, not just at the Johnson Spacecraft Center, but also at uh, the uh, Jet Propulsion Lab on the uncrewed missions to Mars and things like that, holding very important positions. So there's been big improvements. We still have a long way to go, but big improvements. Poppy Northcutt, what an inspiration. And that is Space Boffins. We've been very kindly supported by the UK Space Agency for the past few months. Uh, and you can reach us in all the usual ways. I normally do the thing about subscribing and all that. Yeah, but, you know, know, people know. Yeah, yeah. People know. Yeah. yeah anyway. <laughs> do tell people about us. And uh, thanks for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.